Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogumbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When the pandemic hit, many were forced to move their offices home. And since then, some of us have gotten very used to the midday walks, the naps, and even extra time with family during the working day. But bosses want workers back in the office, and there's a good business case for why. And as Ukraine went to war, Victoria Amelina was on a mission to use her writing to preserve truth amid mass destruction. Our obituaries editor reflects on the life of the civil rights campaigner. But first. For two years, between 2020 and last autumn, a devastating civil war was fought in Tigray, the northernmost region of Ethiopia. They clamber down the canyon wall, driven by the instinct to survive. Disputes over control of Tigray, as well as the running of the federal government in Addis Ababa, had escalated. Tens of thousands have made this journey in the past few weeks. A desperate voyage made by desperate people from the Ethiopian state of Tigray. When the fighting started in November 2020, Ethiopia's National Army joined forces with the military from neighboring Eritrea, as well as with militias from the northern region next door to Tigray, Amhara. This fighting coalition took aim at the regional government of Tigray, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or the TPLF. Forces from Amhara in particular have been accused by multiple parties, including the United States, of annexing contested lands and ethnically cleansing hundreds of thousands of Tigrayans from them. Women and girls were subject to horrific forms of sexual violence. Thousands were forcibly displaced from their homes. Entire communities were specifically targeted based on their ethnicity. Many of these actions were not random or a mere byproduct of war. They were calculated and deliberate. A peace agreement brought the war to an end last November. But Human Rights Watch, a non-governmental organization, has reported that ethnic cleansing is still ongoing. Both sides in the war have been accused of carrying out the atrocities, claims that were being made by the United Nations a year into the war. We have reasonable grounds to believe that during this period, all parties to the Tigray conflict have committed violations of international human rights, humanitarian and refugee law. Some of this may amount to war crimes and crimes against humanity. But the two sides have long rejected those claims. And unless action is taken soon, the truth may never be known. Investigators are fighting against time and quite likely to the deliberate destruction of evidence. Tom Gardner is The Economist's East Africa correspondent. 
we think this because of what we can see through satellite imagery. For example, in March, the UN was pushing for more investigations in Tigray. Precisely around the same time, satellite images of known detention sites administered by authorities from Amhara and suspected burial grounds in the contested areas suggested that some evidence was being disturbed or even destroyed. Now, this imagery collected and analysed by Vigil Monitor, a British-based conflict research group, shows disturbances at locations that eyewitnesses have all separately identified as body disposal sites. So, Tom, I'm going to pause you there. What exactly do you mean by disturbances? Well, we should be clear at this point that it's pretty much impossible to get evidence from the ground in these parts of Tigray and Ethiopia. Since November 2020, when the war began, journalists, aid workers, investigators have all been almost entirely barred from the area known as Western Tigray that is in question here. What these images appear to be showing, though, is fire, scorch marks, most likely the burning of graves, burial grounds. For instance, near three prison camps, these disturbances such as freshly scorched earth became visible shortly after the peace deal was signed between the two sides last November. A particular interest, actually, is a prison in Humira. That's a town in the contested territory of Western Tigray that's close to Ethiopia's border with both Sudan and Eritrea. Burns appeared on grounds identified precisely by former inmates as a mass grave. So Vigil, the research group, argues that such unusual burns noted in various sites suggest that evidence is being destroyed at numerous locations. That's what they argue. And in several of them, scorch marks appeared simultaneously, actually, at the end of March. As mentioned, that coincides with the UN's push for investigations to continue. How credible is this claim against the Ethiopian government? Well, the claim really about the Ethiopian government is that it is complicit in a cover-up or the destruction of evidence. And claims like these are not new in the course of Ethiopia's horror-strewn civil war. In April last year, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty, two rights groups, published a lengthy joint report which concluded that the authorities from Amhara region had systematically killed or evicted hundreds of thousands of Tigrayans from western Tigray with the complicity of Ethiopia's government. A month later, the BBC reported that security forces from Amhara had been digging up mass graves and disposing of bodies. And do you know for certain that these are mass graves being burnt? We don't know for certain. Take, for example, the massacre of Bosnian Muslims at Srebrenica in 1995. That involved interring corpses in designated mass graves, which were easy to see. The disposal of bodies in Western Tigray, by contrast, appears to have been carried out rather more haphazardly. Early in the Tigrayan War, corpses were discovered floating down the Tekeze River into Sudan. After that, following an international outcry, it may be that tactics changed. At times, eyewitnesses and former detainees have said that bodies were left in the open to be eaten by animals. So the 16 that were dead, he saw with his own eyes? Late last year, I interviewed a Tigrayan man who spent more than a year and a half in prison in Humira. Yeah, I was the one who was like uh, taking them outside from that area and then like uh, dropping them into tractor. He told me prison guards had made him load the corpses of 16 fellow inmates onto tractors, which were then carted off to unknown places. So in some, there are still many question marks hanging over this. 
What else is this investigation hoping to achieve? Holding to account those responsible for war crimes and crimes against humanity as part of the peace agreement signed last year. It's also a condition for Ethiopia to improve its relations with the West after more than two years in the diplomatic deep freeze. The war is over, they'd much rather sweep them under the rug and, and just move on. Do you think observers are making any real efforts to pursue justice? Frankly, no, not really. I think uh, Ethiopia's government says it's publishing its own essentially domestic framework for transitional justice later this year, but I don't expect that to include a thorough investigation of past atrocities. It's very unlikely senior officials or military commanders who perpetrated or ordered such crimes will be punished. A new report by Human Rights Watch recently noted that not one Ethiopian official responsible for ethnic cleansing in Western Tigray has been removed or brought to justice. And international efforts such as the UN's ongoing commission of inquiry, which might have, in theory, an incentive to dig more deeply, they're stuck, they're hamstrung, thanks to lobbying by Ethiopian diplomats, which means that their investigators' mandate is unlikely to be renewed later this year. On top of that, Ethiopia's international partners, such as the United States and the EU, seem to be letting the matter quietly slide, whether they admit so or not. Last month, the Biden administration marked a step towards fully resuming American aid and development assistance to Ethiopia by notifying Congress that Ethiopia's government was no longer engaged in a pattern of gross violations of human rights. Well then, Tom, how important is justice if there's a peace deal already? Justice and accountability are supposed to be important parts of the peace deal. And I think it's part of the peace process, which is currently really lacking. And I think that's a mistake because peace without justice is unlikely to be lasting. I don't think any sides in this conflict will see accountability. All sides committed war crimes. The problem really goes beyond just this alleged destruction of burial sites or mass graves. Journalists, aid workers, anyone really independent have been barred from Tigray and especially the contested area of Western Tigray for years now. The UN investigators, when they were briefly allowed to visit Ethiopia last year, were prevented from travelling outside of the capital, Addis Ababa. So what this means in sum really is that even if some evidence has degraded rather than being deliberately destroyed, as we believe some of it at least must have been, the effect will be the same. Forensic material that could confirm exactly what happened during the course of this horrific war will gradually disappear. And with it, the hope of any real reckoning. Tom, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Ori. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This podcast segment is coming to you from my home studio. I'm in pink fluffy slippers and a dressing gown. I've even got a hydrating face mask on. 
Okay, I'm just joking. Well, not about the face mask, but about the dressing gown. But if I were recording from my bed, or, you know, sneaking in a lunchtime nap, you, the listener, and my bosses would never have to know. All this means, though, that my home office is nothing like my work office. And new data suggests that the differences between the two actually do matter. Homeworking has become incredibly common over the last couple of years. Simon Rabinovich is The Economist's U.S. economics editor. Early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, there were some studies that came out that made big headlines saying that working from home was more productive, in fact, than going into the office. Recently, though, there's been a run of new research that suggests the opposite. And tell us a bit more about this new research. What exactly is it saying? Do I need to say goodbye to my very cosy dressing gown? Well, at the outset, let me just say you you don't need to say goodbye to it because one of the conclusions of the studies is that hybrid working is okay, but the focus really is on fully remote working. And there the conclusion is more negative. Let's start with a working paper that got a lot of attention early on in the pandemic, written by some doctoral students at Harvard. They were looking at a big American online retailer that shifted remote because of the pandemic, and they found initially that there had been an 8% increase in the number of calls that employees were able to handle after they went to their homes. But Recently, a revised version of that paper came out from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and they found that looking at the data more closely, that apparent gain in productivity was actually a 4% decline. It's not that the researchers had made a mistake. They got much better data, detailed work schedules. The quantity of the calls decreased, so did the quality. Employees had worse interactions with customers. They put them on hold for longer. More customers phoned back. It was an indication that their problems were not being resolved. Okay, but Simon, technically this is just one study. That's right. But a series of studies now have reached similar conclusions, including ones from the University of Chicago, the University of Essex, have found that performance declines for employees of a large Asian IT firm could be as much as roughly 19%. Others have used laboratory experiments to show that video conferences inhibit creative thinking. And I think if you even go back to the origin of the idea that fully remote working could be more productive, it was a paper that came out in 2013 looking at a Chinese online travel agency that had found this supposed 13% increase in efficiency when remote. But again, if you look at that more closely, there's two important side notes. One is that In fact, the vast majority of that gain in performance wasn't productivity. It's that the employees, when they were at home, were working much longer hours. And then the second point is that that company actually stopped fully remote work because the offsite employees had serious trouble getting promoted. That company has now shifted to a hybrid model. And it is important to note that the research indicates that there is rough productivity equivalence between hybrid work and fully in-office work. But the thing I think that is increasingly going to be on the way out is the notion that fully remote work can be as productive as being in the office or being hybrid. But Simon, do these papers tell us why working fully from home is so much less productive? Well, I think for those of us who've spent a fair bit of time in home offices over the last few years, it's not all that surprising. You know, the number one point is that it's very difficult to collaborate at home. Video calls are not simple fixes for the kinds of serendipitous interactions that one has in an office, the kinds of impromptu meetings that might be held. All that kind of interaction is essential 
to coordination. And if you're working in a large company that has a lot of collective work, coordination is absolutely essential. And being at home is really no substitute for being in the office. But we got better at overcoming some of these challenges remotely during the pandemic, didn't we? We did. We did. And of course, I think if we cast our minds back to 2020, I mean, remember all of us sort of fumbling through Zoom calls, trying to figure out how to mute ourselves or how to raise our hands or how to use other tools like Slack. Those days are long gone. We've gotten better at using the technology. The technology itself has gotten better as well. Beyond the technology, you get to another issue, which is human capital, which is really just the skills that people bring to their day-to-day work. And the point here is that a series of studies, including a recent one looking at Microsoft, have concluded that workers work a lot better together in terms of training each other, mentoring young employees, imparting company culture to new arrivals when they're together in an office setting. When they've gone fully remote, networks of workers tend to be a bit more siloed, feedback doesn't flow nearly as freely, and young workers in particular have a difficult time learning. So if you're a manager thinking about coordination today, but also about skills development for tomorrow, the conclusion is that you need to have your workers in the office, not necessarily all of the time, but most certainly for some of the time. Okay, point taken. I mean, as much as I joke about my face mask and my dressing gown and my slippers, I do actually think that working from home works better for me. I'm not wasting an hour or wasting money commuting. I've got time for gym classes in the morning. I feel more energetic. Don't these things also count towards productivity? Well, you're right. And I think you're getting at something really important, which is that from the vantage point of the employee, there's a lot of benefits to working from home. Employees tend to be happier when they work remotely. They're not having to commute. Maybe they can fit in things more easily like school pickups or doctor appointments or possibly even a spot of exercise or a nap after lunch. And there are certainly some tasks that you can do a lot better from your home office than if you're in an open plan office. Things that require long, unbroken concentration, potentially writing an article for The Economist. So all of these things feel like an increase in productivity to the worker even if conventional measures, whether from the company or from national GDP data, don't necessarily pick them up as increases in productivity. And that explains why lots of workers don't want to come back. But if companies want them to come back, then who do you think is going to win out? Well, I think there is a little bit of a tug of war right now. So as I've said, I think hybrid working is here to stay. It's not going to be necessarily fully back to the office, except for a certain kind of range of companies. But for a lot of workers, the question is, is that going to be two days in the office or three or four? And I think the balance is shifting to a longer amount of time in the office. Even a lot of the big tech companies that were at the forefront of remote work have come out with increasingly aggressive return to work mandates. Companies like Google have actually said that they'll begin to factor in physical attendance into their performance reviews. Having said that, I think there is the possibility for some win-win here. There is evidence, plenty of surveys have indicated that workers are willing to take small pay cuts if it means they can do a good chunk of their week from home. Well, from the corporate manager's perspective, if you think about that, it means that your employees might be a little bit less productive, but their wages will also be a little bit lower, and they'll also certainly be a lot more satisfied, which will boost retention. You put it all together and 
hybrid work is most certainly here to stay. And when bosses are asking you to come back into the office and insisting on it for a few days a week, it's not because they're sadomasochists with a kink for rush hour traffic. It's because they're aware that that is what makes for a more productive, more effective workplace. Okay, phew. I hope that my bosses are listening and not planning on dragging me back into the office full time anytime soon. Simon, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ora. In late autumn in 2022, Victoria Amelina found herself standing under a cherry tree in a village near Izium in eastern Ukraine. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. She was there to look for the diaries buried somewhere by a poet called Vladimir Vakulenko. He had been in the village during the Russian occupation, had kept a very vivid diary of what was going on, and had told his father that he had buried the diaries under a cherry tree, just in case the Russians came to take him away, and they had indeed taken him away. What was more, they had shot him, and his grave had been unearthed among 400 others just outside the village. So Victoria and Volodymyr's father began digging in the garden. Quite quickly, actually, she came upon them. But she took a picture of herself holding these diaries rather triumphantly, still muddy as they were, because to her they were really like a weapon. They were the truth of what had happened in this village while the Russians had been there. She had gone there as a member of a group called Truth Hounds that had been set up just after the Russian invasion. Their remit was to investigate potential war crimes, to hunt down the perpetrators, and with luck, though it was a very faint hope, to bring the perpetrators to justice. And she had joined as one of the first recruits They were quite a shadowy bunch and gave themselves nicknames like Sherlock and Wasabi. And she made herself a pointed mission to go to eastern and southern Ukraine, that is on the front line of the war, and listen to the stories of people there. She had a particular gift for empathizing with people. And in fact, her first novel, which was called November Syndrome, was about a man who had this gift, or curse you could call it, of empathising so deeply with people's suffering that in the end he physically underwent the suffering himself. She didn't quite go that far, but certainly people were astonished at her capacity to listen to awful things. Sometimes, out of her listening, she wrote poems There was one in particular called About a Crow, which looked at an old woman in black standing in a field and imagined that the old woman was intoning the names of her murdered sisters and was sending them out like swallows into the air. Victoria had started writing poetry because she found that the effect of war on language was rather like the effect of war on buildings. It shattered language and it left only the barest parts of it, which she found often summed up the situations 
she observed. What particularly worried her was that there had been a previous purge of artists and intellectuals in Ukraine, which had taken place during the Stalin years. Stalin, first of all, had engineered what was called the Great Hunger or the Terror Famine in 1932-3, where Ukrainians as a whole had suffered so much from hunger that the country had almost been wiped out. And then he had focused particularly on intellectuals attacking an apartment building and arresting all the intellectuals in it, which happened to be most of those active in Ukraine at the time. And Victoria could see that Vladimir Putin, with his war, was also picking off cultural figures, artists, intellectuals, filmmakers, journalists. It seemed a very high proportion of the casualties were people like that who were attacking the Russians and supporting the cause of Ukraine. What she found odd was that Ukrainians seemed to accept this, that in her own family, no one talked about the Great Hunger or the Stalinist purges. There was a sort of silence, a sort of acceptance of the Soviet regime, especially from her grandfather, who had been a Soviet military pilot. She found that with silence and with no openness about the past, there was also no trust between the Ukrainians who wanted to preserve the independence of the country and those who were happy to accept the Soviet regime. The only time she felt that was trust and unity among Ukrainians had been in 2014 when so many protesters had come to the Maidan. And she had felt that there was actually an entity called Ukraine which worked, which had a common political consciousness. But even so, when the Russian invasion happened in 2022, she was not entirely sure that the country was hanging together and had the same perspective. It was a very difficult time and she felt depressed that there was still no real strong Ukrainian identity which was fighting even though Russia was now at war with them. The country had still too vexed a history between the eastern parts and the western parts. And at the end of 2022, beginning of 2023, she was really beginning to feel quite tired with it all. And there came the chance to take a scholarship from Columbia University in New York and accept a writer's residency in Paris. She was about to take that, but there came one more excuse to go east and do her investigative work again when a group of writers from Colombia decided to come to Ukraine and wanted to be taken to see the front line. And it was there on the 27th of June that two Russian missiles slammed into the pizza restaurant where she was eating with this group of Colombian journalists. The whole attack on the pizza restaurant was actually Russia's great last lie to her when the defence ministry said that this was a legitimate military target. Anne Rowe on Victoria Amelina, who has died aged 37.
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin. And our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with help this week from Timo Saylor. Our senior producers are Sam Westron and Rory Galloway. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Alizé Jean-Baptiste, Kevin Kainers, Barclay Bram, and Sarah Larniuk, with extra production help this week from Maggie Kadifa. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Data is the lifeblood of business and society. Want to get better with it? Register now for Economist Education's new two-week course, Data Storytelling and Visualisation, starting on July 31st. Designed by The Economist journalists, you'll learn how to create compelling infographics, reveal hidden insights, and to persuade others. And as an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 15% off with the code DATA. So sign up now at economist.com slash datacourse. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.